0: Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Engineered Solutions of Georgia. Dial 678-ESOG now for a solution to your foundation and waterproofing problems presented by DogNation.com. This is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. I grew up in kind of a rural part of uh, Georgia, Hall County. Now, it's not quite as rural now as it was when I grew up there, but there's certain words we probably grew up saying that maybe didn't say the places, you know, like just, you know, sophisticated people don't use words like this. Like the word doofus, you know, like they're just, you know, uh, certain people that just kind of come across as a little bit of a doofus. I would say that Lane Kiffin may be an example of that. Just somebody that i don't particularly take all that seriously i I don't see him to be you know uh, all that important necessarily someone that's way too active on social media i think there's a sliding scale between like how active you are on social media and how like active you are like within the the boundaries of what's supposed to be your job Uh, to me kiffin's too active on social media to be taken too seriously as a coach but every now and then his desperate search for attention is going to receive the attention he so desperately craves maybe today an example of this i'm going to show it to you most georgia fans kind of roll their eyes at it i understand why you do but it's at least worth having a little bit of a conversation about so uh, kiffin apparently had spent some time in in tuscaloosa recently or i'm not even really sure what the what what the genesis of the tweet really is is but i will show it to you on the screen so kiffin writes on twitter trying to get swole which means you know muscular after spending sunday with the goat and he tags alabama football and he tags kirby smart and it's this like sort of dumb meme of a you know a muscular dude holding a child nick saban the face of the muscular dude kirby smart there the uh, face of the child now let me tell you something and all george fans for the most part already kind of know this You shouldn't be the least bit worried about what Lane Kiffin puts on Twitter. Lane Kiffin is not a speck in Kirby Smart's eye in terms of, you know, stumbling blocks, obstacles to getting him where he wants to go as a head coach. Lane Kiffin is not in Kirby Smart's way. I would assume that Lane Kiffin will never really even be even on the radar of a guy like Kirby Smart. I'm not even sure when the next time George is scheduled to play Ole Miss, but my guess is is 2025, 2023, my guess is Lane Kiffin's not even employed by Ole Miss by the time these two teams uh, get together again, because that's how inconsequential of a coach that I believe Lane Kiffin is. He's very active on social media. I've said this a million times. I say this on SEC Country Live. I say this on this show all the time. Lane Kiffin is a lot better at generating headlines off the field with like this, then he is generating headlines on the field. That's always been really hard for Lane Kiffin to be able to do. He's just not. He's just not very good at that kind of thing. And I would think that most Georgia fans kind of understand this. You know, we've heard Kirby Smart say before. Remember back during the spring uh, a couple of years ago, and I was going to play the audio for you, but I couldn't find it. Uh, you remember a couple of years ago when. You know, there was all the chatter about Florida spring game attendance and, you know, uh, uh, know, the number of days since Georgia won a national championship and all the little subtle jabs that seemingly Florida, led by Dan Mullen, has kind of taken in the direction of Georgia. And Kirby Smart just sort of shrugged the whole thing off, saying, that's okay. we'll just do our talking with our helmets. Now, I believe almost unanimously that we polled like every Georgia fan that's out there and said, hey, which kind of coach do you want? Do you want the active on social media guy, a guy who's chasing the likes and chasing the retweets and chasing all the, you know, the clout that comes with that? Or do you want the kind of coach that does talking with helmets? I would dare say, and I mean this, I would dare say there's almost no Georgia fans within the. You know the reach of this show, listening or watching right now that says, no, 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 don't give me the kind of like hardcore guy who wants to do the talking with his helmets. Give me the guy who's making a fool of himself on social media so he can get some more clout. Give me a guy trying to be an influencer as opposed to a guy who's actually trying to win football games. I, I would dare say there aren't very many Georgia fans who feel that way a- at all. So you don't need to be all that worried. You aren't all that worried about what Lane Kiffin's putting on Twitter. The average Georgia fan will look at it, roll his eyes. maybe kind of smirk a little bit, because it is a little bit out of character from what you see from SEC coaches. That's why stuff like this kind of goes viral, because most SEC coaches are just too professional to behave this way. Uh, But you'll just kind of roll your eyes out. You'll kind of move on. However, I will admit one thing here for a moment, that Kiffin's tweet, as kind of ham-handed as it is, Tiffin's tweet does, I think, bring about a conversation that we probably ought to have, something I've been thinking about a little bit, that whether you want to do it in kind of joking terms or whether you want to do it in more serious terms, however you want to handle it, right? there is obviously this thought that right now that that kirby smart is still in the shadow of nick saban a bit That kirby smart has not quite eclipsed the shadow of nick saban as of yet and nick saban's the reigning national champion uh kirby smart has played nick saban three times since he's been head coach of georgia unfortunately alabama's won all three of those games that you don't have to be you know uh, even like the, the most hardcore Georgia fan, the most hardcore Georgia partisan, something I probably would be, you know, fairly close to being, you know, considered. You don't have to, to, you know, even if you are a, a, like a big time Georgia partisan, you can acknowledge that, yeah, for now, the former Saban lieutenant is still a little bit underneath the shadow of Nick Saban. Even though Kirby Smart's had great success and Kirby Smart's been to the playoff and Kirby Smart's done a lot of things that most SEC coaches would be envious of in terms of eclipsing his old boss, Nick Saban, in terms of getting out from underneath that shadow, you know, the Lane Kiffin tweet at least have some essence of the belief that other folks have, which is that Kirby Smart is still looking to do that in his college career. And so that kind of got me thinking about something else today of, well, exactly how is he going to do that? And and, and this is one of those things where I have to be honest a little bit, that if I were to go back in time when Smart first got the job in 2016, when he first started getting his legs underneath him in 2017, I have to admit that The world has actually turned out to be a little different than I assumed it would be back then. I mean, when Kirby Smart was first hired... I was a little unsure of, wow, you're going to really trust this program to a guy that hasn't been a head coach before. Are you really sure that's the right thing to do? And I, in my immediate skepticism, was won over so quickly because we saw the very aggressive way in which Smart was a great recruiter. We saw the ways in which Smart went out there and started winning recruiting battles, one right after the other, after the other, that Georgia fans in recent years had just not been very used to winning. Not that Georgia was a bad recruiting program, but Smart almost immediately took it to a different level. And when I saw all this happening, obviously, Smart won me over very quickly in all of that, much the same way he did most of you. And I assumed, well, if Smart keeps recruiting this way, then he's clearly going to take over the college football world. He's clearly going to take over the SEC world, uh, certainly for sure. He's going to start taking the players that Alabama would get. And eventually, Georgia will be its own version of Alabama because the players that would have gone to Alabama – would be going to Georgia instead. And what we see now as we head into the 2022 cycle in the year of 2021, that Georgia's really recruiting at an unprecedented level. I mean, not only has Georgia never recruited at the level that it's currently recruiting, you can make a case that almost no one in college football has ever recruited at the level that Georgia's currently recruiting. But that recruiting success for Georgia, if we're gonna be honest with each other for a moment, has not been enough yet for Kirby Smart to get out underneath the shadow of Nick Saban. And it's just being honest to say that. Let me give an example that proves this point. There is a story that gets written every year on this time, and I'm a huge fan of it. Much the same way I love the preseason magazines and stuff like that. There's an online piece that I look forward to reading each and every year. It's from a guy named Bud Elliott, who used to work for a different outlet, and now he works for twenty four seven sports. When he basically does is looks at what he calls the blue chip ratio this is and you've heard me talk about this before a lot of folks in media talk about this a lot um this is the percentage of players signed by a program over the previous four years who were four or five star recruits those are the so-called blue chips and the theory that has been i would say now proven by bud elliott is that if you want to win a national championship in college football You have to have more four and five star players than not. Your blue chip ratio, the percentage of four and five star guys you have over the previous four years has to be higher than 50 percent. And if you're below that 50 percent threshold, you are not a legitimate national championship contender. But within the kind of frame of reference of this blue chip ratio, something else really interesting is happening right now. It continues to be true that you have to be above 50 percent to win the national championship. But the teams at the very top of this list, Georgia included, are now soaring above 50%. Let me show this to you on the screen if you're watching on video. And if you're not, I'll read it to you. This is the top teams, according to Bud Elliott, blue chip ratio for 2021. Georgia is number two on this list. Here's what I find amazing. And if you could have gone back to 2016, 2017 and told me this, I would have assumed that Georgia was winning stacks of national championships. Do you realize, according to Bud Elliott, 80% 80% of the players on Georgia's roster are former four- and five-star recruits. 80%. That's four out of every five guys signed by George over the last four years are blue-chip, former four- or five-star recruits. Had that been true, had you told me years ago that was going to be true, I would have imagined so much success for Georgia. But we just live in a different world here in 2021, going into the 2022 recruiting cycle than I could have ever imagined. Getting to 80% actually only gives Georgia a slight edge over the number three team, Ohio State, who's at 79. And for as much as Georgia has done and the recruiting battles they win, one after the other, knocking them down over and over again, for all the success that Georgia has, Alabama is still number one on that list at 84%. It's amazing to me to think that Georgia Recruiting at the level that it has has seen Alabama somehow find a way to at least recruit at that level, if not a, a little bit better, a, a little bit bigger. Let, let me give you a couple of words here from Bud Ellie on this story at 247sports.com. He says not only are there more teams meeting the threshold of blue chip than there used to be, he says, but in recent years, there have been a large increase in the number of teams who are recruiting way over the 50 percent mark. Elliott says in 2014, no team was above 75 percent. In 2015, only Alabama was. In 16 and 17, it was still just Alabama. The 2018 blue chip ratio saw Ohio State get into that super elite class. And then he says, but in 2019, three of the four highest ratios ever showed up. 2020 had at the time the first, second and fourth highest blue chips ever with Alabama, Georgia and Ohio State. Elliott goes on to say this year, Alabama set an all time record with an astounding 84 percent mark. So you've got Georgia recruiting at a level in comparison to almost every other program in the history of college football that would be the greatest of all time, yet concurrent to that, you've also got Alabama recruiting at the greatest of all time, if not slightly a little bit better. Now, this is one of those things where you just sort of sort of forced, to be honest here for a moment, that if you want to take the Lane Kiffin meme seriously for a moment or the people who laugh at that and the Bama fans or other SEC fans who share that on social media who would suggest that Kirby Smart for now is still in the shadow of of Nick Saban and if you're a Georgia fan you want to take that seriously just for a brief moment you ask the question of what's it going to take to to get out from underneath that what's it going to take for for Kirby Smart to eclipse Nick Saban and I think the honest answer unfortunately is this you are not going to beat Nick Saban by out Sabening Nick Saban does that make sense you're not going to overtake him by trying to be the sort of uh you know souped up version of what he is you're recruiting blue chips at a 80 percent level he's doing it at 84. So, somehow, some way, you've got to find the same kind of magic that uh, Clemson found in 2018. Measurably fewer elite recruits in Alabama, but beat them in the national championship game. The same thing for LSU in 2019. Fewer elite recruits, still enough ahead of the everybody else in the blue chip ratio, but less than Alabama. But somehow LSU wins that game in Tuscaloosa, goes on to win the national championship there as well. That There's some sort of like magic missing quotient that teams like Clemson had in 2018, LSU had in 2019, that goes beyond just the sheer number of elite recruits that you collect. You've got to be a dominant team. You've got to have elite talent, but you've also got to have something in addition to that. And so if you're a Georgia fan looking forward to this upcoming season, that's the thing I think you're looking for is what is the special magic ingredient? What's the secret formula that goes along with elite talent? Elite talent alone may not be enough because Alabama always seems to find that way to get just a little bit more of that. But whether it be great quarterback, really smart coaching staff. Whatever that the LSUs in 2019 have happened to find, the Clemsons in 2018 happened to find, whatever that secret formula is, that does become a way of overtaking the Crimson Tide. So I think it's a fun year looking ahead to Georgia for what it has a chance to accomplish. It's got the talent, but Elliott from 24-7 Sports gives you the numbers to prove that. But that missing piece, that secret ingredient, that special formula that previous teams have used to overtake the Crimson Tide, that's the thing that George is looking for this season. And I'm like many of you, can't wait to see them hopefully find it. My name's Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans, presented today by Engineered Solutions of Georgia. Glad to have you with us, no matter how you get to us today, live on video, 10 a.m., Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, all those video platforms, uh, podcast platforms, all kinds of ways to get the program. We just really appreciate you being a part of what we're doing here today. Big, big thanks to our friends at Engineered Solutions of Georgia for making it all possible. You know, foundation waterproofing issues, that's a big deal. Yesterday was pouring down rain. I was driving around in the rain a lot yesterday and I was thinking about, you know, all those people when you see that rain show up and you're nervous because you know that rain on the outside of the house has a way of creeping to the inside of your house, especially in your basement. For some of you, it's your garage, crawl space, whatever else. That can be a sign of a serious problem. The thing of it is, is you don't need me to tell you that. You already know the truth of of that. And you see those cracks showing up in your foundation. You you see some of that kind of stuff happening from time to time. Here's the thing I'm going to tell you, that you can have better peace of mind. You can feel better by taking the step to find out what's really going on here and what the solution to your problem is. The good news is, many times, it's a simple solution. And Engineered Solutions of Georgia, being a solutions-based company, will give you that simple fix to that problem if that'd be the case. But if it's something more substantial than that, then all the more reason to have ESOG on the job because they have two full-time engineers on staff, smart people to do good work for you. They're also proud partners of UGA, makes some fun to do business with, Long-time friends of ours here on Dog Nation Daily, and we love those who support those who've supported us. We certainly appreciate that. So check out Engineered Solutions of George today. Give them a call. 678-ESOG-NOW. That's 678-ESOG-NOW. That'll get you in touch with Engineered Solutions of George. All right. We're going to get Connor Riley here in a moment. We'll do a Kroger Fresh Take with him. Before that, though, I want to go around the doghouse. And yesterday was kind of a big day for college athletics and sometimes challenging to kind of explain everything that went on. So I'm going to do my best As succinctly as possible to explain what happened yesterday with the supreme court and kind of where i think this could be leading college football and college athletics in general next so i'm not a lawyer but i did try to read a lot about this yesterday So here's what goes down. The Supreme Court decided 9-0, total trouncing, against the NCAA in a case that the NCAA essentially begged the Supreme Court to take on. The NCAA didn't have to petition the Supreme Court on this, but they chose to. The the Supreme Court didn't have to take the case. They get to choose which cases they do take, but seemingly they kind of wanted to take this one, uh, even... (laughs) though the NCAA seemed to think they may get some relief from the Supreme Court on this, it actually worked out the exact opposite. Uh, Most people kind of view this as a huge tactical error on the part of the NCAA to even put this in front of the Supreme Court, given the verdict that was ruled yesterday. The case in itself is fairly narrow in its scope in that what the NCAA was kind of appealing was the idea that they have no right to put a cap on additional educational benefits for student athletes beyond the scholarship and the you know you know the, the typical stuff they already earn. You know, the idea that the NCAA could prohibit any kind of additional educational benefits over that. The examples that get used a lot are like extra laptops or technology for students to enjoy or paid for graduate programs or study abroad programs, things like that, things that could be an incentive to student athletes. The NCAA has argued against, you know, having more of that kind of stuff. And the court yesterday said that, no, you can't do that. I, I guess the best that I can understand on the basis of like some of the the legal people that I read is that you know the case in itself may not have that big of an impact on college sports as we understand it there are some smaller schools that may find this a little bit onerous to deal with kind of a world in which they're forced to compete with bigger schools who are you know providing all kinds of benefits that may be a little bit of an issue but for the most part the actual scope of, of, of this case may not be all that significant like the one big I guess legal precedent that was set from the case yesterday was that the NCAA has commonly cited a 1984 Supreme Court court ruling as a way of defending their amateur status and kind of the the value of amateurism and the court yesterday said you can't do that anymore now i'm not a lawyer i can't really tell you why the legal precedent no longer allows for that but that's what the supreme court said yesterday that's the one like sort of legal you know kind of thing that came out of all of this but There is another layer to this that I think is pretty interesting. So you have, like, the majority opinion that sort of explains all this. And uh, Brett Kavanaugh, one of the Supreme Court justices, also gave what's called a concurring opinion. Now, the concurring opinion does not have the force of law, but it is certainly an influence on how, like, future... Litigation may take place. And it was a pretty strongly worded rebuke against the NCAA. I'm going to read just a couple of sentences here from this and we're going to try to make a quick point. He says, To be sure, the NCAA and its member colleges maintain important traditions that have become part of the fabric of America game days in Tuscaloosa and South Bend, packed gyms and stores in Durham, women's and men's lacrosse championships on Memorial Day, track and field meets in Eugene, uh, spring softball, baseball World Series in Oklahoma and Omaha. So he's clearly establishing his bona fides as someone who knows college sports. He goes on to say, The list goes goes on. But he says those traditions alone cannot justify the NCAA's decision to build a massive money-raising enterprise on the backs of student athletes who are not fairly compensated. Uh, Kavanaugh says nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it's not evident that why college sports should be any different. He says the NCAA is not above the law. Once again, that's not in itself, law, that's just Kavanaugh's opinion, but obviously a Supreme Court justice's opinion could certainly have weight in how future cases are decided. Now, here's the thing I think is interesting. We're going to move on. I searched yesterday in response to all of this to kind of find anybody who disagrees. You know, all nine justices were seemingly in, in a line in agreement on what happened with the court case yesterday. And in terms of what Kavanaugh wrote there, I mean, it was amazing to me. And I really spent a lot of time on social media, which is sort of the best way to measure this kind of stuff, trying to find anybody with any kind of like significant following whatsoever who says, wow, I'm not quite so sure this is good for the future of college sports. And you almost see none of it. And what makes me nervous about that is, and I'm not as smart as Brett Kavanaugh or as smart as any other Supreme Court justice. I, I can't pretend to know the law as, as well as they do. I wouldn't even pretend to do that in front of you right now. But here's what I do. Know. I mentioned at the top of the program. Like, I'm from a small town. It's not as small now as it used to be, but when I grew up, it was very small. And the place that I live now, while the population's pretty big, it still kind of operates sort of functionally like a small town does. And here's what I believe I can tell you about the people that I did grow up with, the people that I do live around now. They don't view college sports the same way that Brett Kavanaugh does in the statement that he just made, nor the other eight justices in the way they've kind of uh, sort of expressed some skepticism about the role that amateurism and the college sports model plays in, in in our society today. They just don't view it that way. And I'm not talking about just the fans of the sport. I'm talking about the folks who have kids who they hope one day get a chance to play college sports. I mean, I see this with my own eyes at baseball fields where baseball players and softball players are hoping to one day get some portion of an NCAA scholarship, won't even pay for their full school. They're just hoping to get a portion of their school paid for because they love the idea of the prestige of being able to be a college athlete to say nothing of the way that entire towns around the South are sort of organized around the principle of, hey, you play high school football and. Boy, you hope that you get tapped on the shoulder to give a chance to go play college football. That's the way that the, these towns are kind of organized. It's the town that I kind of grew up in. It's the town that I live in now. That's just kind of the organizing principle for those communities. And it seems like there's almost like unanimous agreement among the media. That's not a good thing anymore. And the Supreme Court unanimously deciding in, sort of against the idea of, of that kind of continuum with the with the, with the the notion that, that the future of amateurism is now totally threatened by all of this. And I guess my only concern is, like, is there any room for a voice at the table for the people who still think college sports is a good thing? Which, by the way, I believe is still the majority of the people in this country. Is there any room at the table for that voice to be heard in this whatsoever? That's the thing that concerns me most here, that the people who are leading this discussion, the people who are making the decisions, the people in power, the the nine Supreme Court justices, I would say in this particular case just don't seem to accurately reflect the view of the of the larger population very well. And to me, that's something worth watching. And we'll certainly do that around here. It's around the doghouse here on Dog Nation Daily here today. we gonna get Connor Riley coming up in a moment. Before that, though, I want to tell you about a great thing that's uh, going on right now. For those of you that, that need a job, they're looking forward to get involved here, this is an important thing for you. It's uh, WorkSource Georgia, and they're going to help you turn up the heat on your job search uh, right now. Recipients of a $25 million grant, uh, a federally funded program that's offering free training, short-term employment opportunities to those who are recently laid off. And unfortunately, in our audience, a size of of an audience like this, some of you kind of find yourself in that situation. You've either been separated from your job because of the pandemic, uh, or you've been kind of underemployed or unemployed for a substantial amount of time. Certainly, certainly sorry to hear about that, but WorkSource Georgia can help you kind of get on with the next phase of your career. A federally Im- funded employment uh, training system that's con- that's committed to connecting you uh, with the opportunity that you need to get involved with. It. It's every region in our state. It's free training on demand, uh, in demand careers, and short term uh, job placement opportunities. Uh, so if you've been negatively impacted by COVID-19, that's going to cost you your job, your work opportunity. Please check out this website. It's WorkSourceGeorgia.com slash COVID. If you're watching a video, you see it on the screen. Uh, WorkSourceGeorgia.com slash COVID. You can find out more about this and uh, really get involved in a uh, job training job placement opportunity that's going to set you up for a better career. And so many people looking to kind of move on to the next phase of their life for what's really been a challenging time during the coronavirus. So WorkSourceGeorgia.com slash covid the source that you need to go to to find out more about that. We certainly appreciate the service they're providing here to our great state. All right, we're going to have Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner's response to all this from yesterday coming up in just a moment. But for now, on everything going on around UGA, kind of where all of the future of all this is going with college sports and what's happening right now, let's do a Kroger Fresh Take with Connor Riley here today on Dog Nation Daily. and across the sec or wherever the recruiting trail may lead here's a DogNation.com insider my first chance to talk to connor riley live here in really quite some time I'm on vacation last week connor also enjoyed a little time off last week there as well connor good enough to be a part of some of our pre-recorded shows last week and i certainly appreciate that but he joined us here for a kroger fresh take here today and connor i want to talk to you about the current situation on the ground with uga in a moment before that though it was a big day from the supreme court yesterday a lot of I guess, opinions and kind of, in some cases, hot takes about where all this is leading for the future of college athletics. What did you think about kind of uh, what went down yesterday and what do you think is going to happen next?
1: I think right now it's all a little overblown just because they, the Supreme Court intentionally had a narrow in scope decision to make and they essentially limited what they were saying to just educational spending, which essentially means you know things like iPads, books, etc., and not directly yet paying the players. But it's sort of a, an analogy that I'd heard use. It's like the rumbling thunder you hear off in the distance, changes coming. I, I think people are going to use the Kavanaugh opinion mm-hmm. as a way to challenge pay for play, which has been you know the the big sticking point in the sport in, in college football in particular for quite some time now. So as far as what this means immediately today, June twenty second. Not a whole lot is going to change. I think this is just taking a, a cap off the um, school spending stipend or whatever it was called when they first instituted a few years ago. Uh, cost of attendance stipend. There it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't change a whole lot, but I, I think it's the signaling of some bigger changes could potentially happen down the line.
0: Yeah, we've already seen key attorneys saying they're going to change the arguments they're making in lawsuits they have currently ongoing, essentially arguing for an end to amateurism and any kind of limit on compensation whatsoever. And let me just say this real quick. I don't think there's any negative impact on Georgia about this at all. If anything, you know, the more that compensation and money becomes a factor, the better chance Georgia has to sort of money whip everybody in college sports. Like this has a chance to be a very good thing for Georgia. But I do personally believe, and I genuinely believe this, that if there are fewer scholarships available, if there are fewer teams playing at the college athletic level, I'm talking, about, you know, if ten, twenty years from now, then even if it's a good thing for Georgia, it's sort of a bad thing for society overall.
1: I mean, again, it's one of those things where you know we live in a capitalistic society, and so the schools with more money are going to benefit and, proper and prosper for that, and quite frankly, there isn't much of a desire for the rich schools to hold up the poorer schools. I think we've even sort of started to see that as, as scheduling models get more aggressive. I wonder what's going to happen to some of these Group of Five and some of these FCS programs that simply don't have the ability to play in these buy games anymore, but it's a society we live in. I, I think the top schools, the schools that have the most access to the most money, they're going to figure out a way to adapt and deal with this new situation and if you're not able to do that and adapt I mean to use moneyball adapt or die and I mean it sounds like that's something that could possibly happen to some of these schools I would
0: also add this very quick and then we'll change the subject that it's not to me just the small kind of group of five FCS level schools who could drop off I mean, we already see athletics slightly less popular than it used to be at a place like Stanford. Stanford tried to get rid of some of its sports uh, this past year and eventually, you know, uh, was kind of forced to to kind of go the other direction on that. I would say the Stanfords, the Vanderbilts, the, the, the programs like that that are trying to play big time college sports in this new world where it's seemingly even less about academics than it was before. I mean, I think you're already starting to see some rumblings and grumblings of just how – how much would schools like that still want to be a part of the division one story if academics were less a part of the discussion they've been in the past
1: well i mean we saw clumson try and get rid of its uh, track and field and mm-hmm. swimming program so you know this is a thing that's going to affect everything and again that wasn't born out of you know paying players possibly that was born of COVID 19 is forcing budget cuts and the reality is at the end of the day College sports is a business and so, you know, if you if you're someone that's that long held the belief that players should be able to get a part of that business, I think yesterday you see that as a win. Whereas if you're someone who roots for these colleges, you know, it's gonna cost more money now going forward in all likelihood when this does get challenged. And at the end of the day, that's bad for business, and it is going to have some trickle-down effects.
0: Let me uh, move on here. One of my favorite things that comes out each and every year is the Bud-Elliott blue chip ratio. I think you know Bud works for a competing entity, but I think that Bud does a really good job, and he has done well with this particular uh, story many years. We've had him as a guest on Dog Nation Daily every year for as long as I can remember, because I like talking blue chip ratio. And, Connor, I said this um, before you joined us, that as a fan of Georgia— if you would have told me years ago, hey, one day Georgia's gonna have eighty because I've been reading this blue chip ratio story for a million years. If you would have told me Georgia's gonna have eighty percent of its roster be former four and five star players, I guess I would have wondered how big the trophy case even was. Like how much like how much room are there for national championship trophies, given the fact that Georgia's recruiting at a level that's almost twice the rate of what even a good program would have been doing five, six years ago. But as Georgia has increased its recruiting success, unfortunately, its chief SEC competition, Alabama has kind of done the same thing. And so all of a sudden now, even with 80% four and five star players, if Georgia were to play Alabama in the SEC championship this December, almost certainly Georgia is still a point spread underdog in that game because it is just really hard to out Saban Nick Saban, that Nick Saban finds a way to kind of increase his rate of success, even as you're increasing your rate of success exponentially that doesn't mean that he can't be overtaken it doesn't mean that hope is lost for georgia but it does kind of point to the need to kind of find sort of a special sauce if you want to get this done
1: well i think the important thing here for if you're a georgia fan looking at this blue chip ratio look at how many teams i believe there were 16 that meet that over 50 percent threshold in the ACC, there are two. There is Clemson and there is Miami. Those are the only two teams that currently meet that threshold. That's why it's not surprising that come the end of the year, because Clemson has such a significant talent advantage over the rest of its conference, it's making the college football playoff more often than not. You look at Ohio State, third, 79%. The only other two teams that cross that 50% threshold are Penn State and Michigan, and those are at 58 and 56%. So those schools have a smaller barrier to clear in terms of using that max talent advantage to their edge Georgia doesn't have that they're going to go play Clemson this year the number four team they're probably going to play Alabama the number one team at the end of the season they have to go play Florida who's I believe tied for fifth or sixth they have
0: 60 60, there's a whole group at 66 yeah two-thirds of
1: the roster are blue chip recruits the recruiting the perceived recruiting advantage that Georgia has doesn't really exist because of the schedule that they have to play because they have to play so many of those similar blue chip ratio teams that the talent advantage they have is somewhat mitigated especially when you compare that to say an Ohio State or Clemson
0: it's the number one reason why I'm in favor of playoff expansion Mm -hmm. I'm talking about as a Georgia partisan here you know sometimes I sort of look at things what's better for college football sometimes I sort of look at things what's better for my favorite team Georgia in the case of 12 team expansion I kind of find myself sort of putting the Georgia fan hat on a little bit more. Georgia needs an expanded playoff. They need a measuring stick beyond just Alabama, mm. which does not mean for those you know Alabama goofballs who are tuned in right now, that does not mean that um, I'm conceding anything to Alabama or anything like that. That's not what that means. I absolutely think that Georgia has a chance to eventually, if not this year, beat Alabama. But it'd be nice to have more measuring sticks than just that. And when you have a 12-team playoff, and I'll I'll let you talk about this, but when you have a 12-team playoff, you just have more teams you mm-hmm. can beat and more ways to prove yourself and more ways to measure your progress along the way to eventually winning a national championship.
1: Yeah, Georgia right now, the reason they so love people so love to ding them is because they have the audacity to challenge the Alabama dynasty. And they just have not gotten over that hump yet. But if you look at other programs, I mean what team other than Clemson has with any regularity or even really consistency beaten Alabama yeah. doesn't exist. And so because Georgia took on that task, much like you know the the Houston Rockets when Golden State was running the NBA Houston went for it they went for it all they went all in chips in the table and unfortunately they just came up short because of some poor injury luck so it's one of those things with Alabama that and expanding the playoff while on the on its surface I do think it's good for Georgia because one it'll redefine I think what classifies as a successful season because right now for if you're a top tier college football program it's if you make the playoff had a great season if you don't it, it, you know it's kind of like what were we doing this for whereas if you expand that it changes success a little bit. But the one thing that I – because I wrote about this this morning – a 12-team playoff, I don't necessarily know if that makes it easier to accomplish Georgia's end goal of winning a national title, because you're going to have to play more games, and that would just induce more randomness or variance to the ultimate goal of winning a national title, which is what Kirby Smart ultimately wants to do at the end of the
0: Totally game. agree. More games just make it more difficult. You see this in yeah. the baseball playoffs, too. They've added those like, wild card rounds. Mm-hmm. Having to win a game like that, If you for those that have to play in that game, it's just more, more difficult to do. But I do think the value of a 12-team playoff, let's say there had been one in existence for the last few years, Georgia fans almost certainly would have been happier at the end of the 2018 yes. season because you would have had something to hang your hat on. Now, you might have lost. Georgia did lose to Texas in the bowl game that year. But they would have had a very good chance of beating whatever team they played Correct. In, in, the, in that first you know playoff. Game 2019 may be kind of the same way that there's this thing of – it's weird. Like, there's nothing worse than being the second best team in the SEC and the fifth best team in the country. That's yep. a weird thing, but that team is like the most un- unhappy team in the country, yep. and an expanded playoff makes that less true, I believe.
1: Yeah, and again, it's going to force and change what defines a successful season, because I can absolutely tell you going forward. It's no longer going to be enough for some schools to just make the playoff. You're going to have to start winning games or at least multiple games in some cases. You know, save your job. You think back to Mark Rick going 10-3 and last couple years he was in charge of Georgia. Eventually, Georgia said that just wasn't enough for where we want to get to. Going forward, 10-3 some years in a Power 5 conference might get you into the playoff alone. But if you're just doing that and mm-hmm. just getting in and losing in the first round year after year, Eventually, I think schools are going to get impatient and say, well, why can't we go to that next level where we're getting to a semifinal or a championship game every so often?
0: I want to make one more point about this. This is kind of an abstract point, so hopefully I make this kind of clearly. Years ago, I just would have assumed this was mathematically impossible. The idea that Georgia could be at 80% for former four- and five-star recruits and Alabama could be at 84 I just wouldn't have assumed there'd be enough players to go around, especially with Clemson getting two of every, every three of its players at that level and uh, Ohio State being essentially at the same level that Georgia is. I just would have assumed that there just wouldn't be enough players to go around to have that many teams with such a high level of former elite recruits. And so I find myself wondering, where are these players coming from? And I think it's fairly obvious what's happening here. Programs that Georgia plays every year, Auburn, South Carolina. Tennessee Tennessee's fairly close to the blue chip number but it's still below 50%. And they're going to take a step back this yeah. year as well. Um a lot of these teams that we think of historically as being oh very talented tough teams I mean, the talent off those rosters is just being sucked like a black hole mm-hmm. into the Alabama roster, the Georgia roster. The, the 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 concurrent rise of both Georgia and Alabama has been really bad for some of these SEC teams that are geographically very close to both those programs.
1: Right, and you even think you look at a Florida program who around 2013-2014 when when Mark Rook was still in charge. Will Muschamp was signing top three classes. Will Muschamp was recruiting better than Dan Mullen currently is. So you do have some of the drain there of those type of middle-tier program play – or not middle-tier, but not quite top-tier programs – their best players deciding, hey, instead of being the big man on campus at Auburn, let me go try to go to Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Ohio State and win a national title. And I absolutely believe that the college football playoff has put that into perspective of, hey, I need to go to a place where I can play in playoff games play against a bunch of other really good players because that's going to help me get to the NFL at the end of the day.
0: I want to talk to you about some more of the stuff that's happened since you and I last spoke. We'll do that coming up at the moment. It's Kroger Fresh Take with your Conor Riley today. And, you know, Kroger's currently hiring for several positions, and I can't recommend this enough to you because – Look, I I know a lot of the folks at Kroger. I know how they treat their employees. I know how the employees there feel in terms of how they're treated by uh, the folks at Kroger. It's just a great place to work because it offers more than just a paycheck. It's a total rewards compensation. In some cases, it's tuition reimbursement, in some cases, associate discounts, uh, all kinds of partner perks. This is really something you're going to want to check out. If you're looking for a job, go to Kroger.com to find out more about this, or just stop by your local Kroger today and really find out about all the great things that come your way from being an employee there at Kroger. All right, Connor, as our Kroger Fresh Take rolls on here. So there was the commitment of Mikael Williams to USC. There was the transfer portal story involving Demetrius Robertson. A couple of dogs get named to preseason All American teams. What was interesting to you over the course of the last week since we had a chance to sort of speak in a live format here on the show?
1: So, uh, you know, taking you guys behind the curtain here a little bit, we pre recorded some shows last week, and one of the days. The headline was, I believe, it's a much better offseason for Georgia this yeah. year than it hasn't. I don't know if it was past year, last year, or past years. Sure. And then Mikhail Williams commits to USC, and I'm thinking, oh boy, if Ba if Ba could do it over, I, I have a feeling he tweaked that headline a little bit there. I, I to me, that's the most interesting thing, just because you have the Bear Alexander news, you have Mikael Williams, him. Committing to USC very quickly after a visit, and and you know I'm sure you'll bring this up. The track record of players going out to the West Coast from the state of Georgia right. has not exactly been stellar. Even if you look at a guy like Davis Mills, who spent his career at Stanford, had some trouble avoiding injury, and while yes, he was a third round draft pick by the Houston Texans, I I, I think you know if, if things go differently for Davis, he is a top ten potential quarterback prospect. So, I. Did Michael Williams news? While it's not quite as somber tone as the Bear Alexander, because Michael Williams that that recruitment is not over. Whereas I think Alexander might be a little bit more. Even though one of those prospects is now committed, and the other is not.
0: Yeah, I and mean, in the case of Williams, and you're right, I've said this a million times. I don't know where Williams is going. He's not going to USC, yeah. or if he does, there he's not going to stay. I mean, these guys that leave Georgia go out west. They're just not happy. They just it just doesn't work out that way. It looks great on TV. I'm sure that USC does an amazing visit. You know, uh, if you go to the right place in LA, they can be a really fun really fun place to take a visit 3,000 miles is a long way from from home home. And, and, and nobody's ever happy that makes that long jump and the honest truth is and I've tried to explain my position on this whether it be the Alexander D. commitment whether it be the Williams you know commitment to USC, the uncertain status of Travis Shaw, Walter Nolan, things like that. I'm honestly not that worried about this situation. First of all, I'm a big believer that what happens in the field for Georgia right mm-hmm. now is so much more important. If Jordan Davis goes out and does what you know early projections are for him to do, the defensive line recruiting is never going to be a problem for Georgia ever again, yeah. right? 2022 or, or, or beyond. But other than that, I mean, look, when, when you have these sort of chaotic things you've had the last couple of years, I think it benefits... Lesser programs and USC is a historic power. Don't get me wrong on yeah. that. But the last couple of years They haven't recruited the same level they have someone in the past So it's a little easier for them to have a visit high and get a commit Tennessee Obviously scarfed up a bunch of headlines last year in kind of the chaotic world of the absence of visits So I truly don't see anything right now that leads me to believe that that Georgia's in any kind of jeopardy of not having to use like four negatives in the same sentence uh, um I don't see anything that would lead me to believe that is in jeopardy of not having an elite recruiting class. I, I just don't see that. The Williams news is certainly interesting because it's kind of out of nowhere. The Alexander thing is a little bit more of a, well, I mean, we've been saying Texas A&M was going to be a yeah. threat here all, all, all along. I don't see anything yet that would leave me all that worried when it comes to that position, obviously a position of need, deep as it is for this 2022 cycle. I'm actually not that worried about that right
1: now. Right, and, and one last thing on Williams here, I mean— are we sure Clay Helton's going to be the coach at USC in right. December? Right. Because again, last year, yeah, they played for a Pac-12 title game. If you go back and look at some of their advanced metrics, USC was very lucky to have the regular season that they did last year in terms of wins and losses. And that and those numbers can flip very easily the other way. And if USC goes 7-5 and five or 8-4 and four this year, you have to wonder if Clay Helton's there. And if I mean, look, I love California. I love Los Angeles more more than anyone here at the Dog Nation team. I can at least say that. <laughs> and and so, you know, it's great. I love visiting there. I don't exactly know if I want to live there or spend three, right. four years, especially being that far away from home.
0: Uh, you know, you also wrote over the course of the last few days about the All-American list that came out. Davis was on that. And... You know, I thought your take on this and comparing, you know, what Georgia has from a preseason All American standpoint to Clemson is a pretty interesting comparison, given the fact they kind of line up somewhat, yeah. you know, uh, symmetrically. The questions about Justin Ross, the questions about George Pickens, and some of the other stuff that's going on there. To me, the preseason list that does come out, which has what Davis and Salyer and Pickens and uh, Camarda, um, I think it also speaks to the thing we've been kind of harping on all of, offseason long: is you got to find some second team guys and make them first team all-american guys you got to find you know a handful of all-american guys but also find a few more guys that can be like first team all sec you got to have top end talent performances if you want to win that national championship this year and what this preseason all-american list from walter camp i think indicates is the same thing we've been saying for a while There's clearly candidates to do so, but you're going to have to have multiple guys sort of take a pantheon leap in the same season, which is admittedly not that easy to do.
1: Right. And I actually think some of the guys that have the best chance of getting on that sort of first team end of season list weren't even guys on that right. on that Walter camp list. I would think a guy like Tyke Smith who, has, mm. who was an All-American last season, a third-teamer, can he go to the first team with a little bit more exposure and taking a leap playing in the SEC? JT Daniels is the most obvious candidate, but obviously there you have guys like Sam Howell, Spencer, Spencer Rattler, a lot of other talented quarterbacks out there, and JT Daniels is going to need to be really, really, really good this season, whereas I think last year he was just really good in the four games that he started for Georgia. So, I, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think the one you know the way it framed it was you know clemson and georgia and iowa state all have four players on their team
0: right all
1: four of georgia's were on the second team yeah. and as, as you i think very succinctly summed up they need to get a few more of those guys on the first team
0: and to repeat a point i made before and we'll kind of make this the the last thing look if jt daniels is that guy you know hmm CBS had some nice things to say about Daniels. We talked about him on the show yesterday. If Daniels is as good as the top-end projection for him is, then he is dragging some people with him. He's taking maybe a Darnell Washington or maybe at least the All-SEC level. The All-American thing is a little bit hard to sometimes predict Mm -hmm. because there's so many teams in the country. But first-team All-SEC is getting the job done. If you're first-team All-SEC, I almost don't care if you're All-American because first-team All-SEC is plenty good enough. So if Daniels is that, if he outplays Bryce Young, if he outplays Matt Corral, um, which maybe he's motivated to do after Lane Kiven's dumb tweet. Um, you know, if he goes out there and does those things, then he is taking some people with yeah. him, and much the same way Clemson overcame a talent deficient uh, deficit to beat Alabama in twenty eighteen, LSU did the same thing to beat Alabama in twenty nineteen. You know, the secret sauce for Georgia, slightly less talented than Alabama, is that big season from JT Daniels. It always kind of comes back to that. It seems
1: right, like. and I think the barrier that Georgia has to leap isn't as quite as high as what LSU and Clemson had to do mm-hmm. because you know. Joe Burrow and Trevor Lawrence were the for last two number 1 overall picks. And as much as I, I think everyone here likes what JT Daniels could be, because of his knee issues, I don't think you're going to see JT Daniels be the number 1 overall draft pick unless he is just truly right. goes Joe Burrow-esque, just blows it out of the water. But the barrier that Georgia has to leap compared to some of those other teams in terms of getting over the Alabama hump – isn't quite as high because you have guys like Darnell Washington, Arik Gilbert, uh, Jermaine Burton, guys who can have big seasons, who we've seen it in flashes. They just need to make that a more consistent week-in, week-out turn.
0: All right, Connor, uh, good stuff. Thanks for being here as a part of a Kroger Fresh Take today. Glad to have you back on the job and uh, looking forward to seeing what you have coming down the uh, next few days here at Nation.
1: Yep, as always, was a pleasure.
0: Let's take a look around the rest of the league. This is SEC Through. Yeah, so well, good stuff there. Always a bunch of stuff going on around you. G.A. Love following all of that. Before we move on to our SEC Through, let me give a shout out to my friends Mary Weather and Tharp for a moment. Your source for Georgia divorce. This is one of those things that you sort of have to deal with reality, and reality is that in an audience the size of ours, some of you are on the verge of getting a divorce. And that just stinks. I'm sure it's, sure it's a hard thing to go through. But the thing that can make it somewhat easier, certainly make the next chapter of your life more enjoyable, is to have a strong advocate by your side. And by strong, the strength here is going to be demonstrated by knowledge of the law, but also how it impacts your specific situation. Because every situation is somewhat different, right? There are fact-specific determinations for everything involved here. Meriwether and Tharp can help walk you through all that. They are your source for Georgia divorce. The good thing is, is that you can go ahead and in kind of a no-pressure way, sort of find out about all of this. If you go to their website, theatlantadivorceteam.com, theatlantadivorceteam.com, you can check out the blog posts and the podcast and all those kinds of things. And then maybe that'll give you what you need to take that next step, which is to have that free initial consultation with one of their attorneys, and then put them to work for you to help kind of setting you up to enjoy the next season of your life, which is a very important thing. Getting the most out of each of life seasons, there's nothing that's more crucial than that. And that's what my friends at uh, Meriwether and Tharp are going to do. Your source for Georgia divorce, find them online at theatlantadivorceteam.com. All right, so in light of the ruling yesterday from the Supreme Court, there was a lot of kind of immediate response to all of this. The NCAA, and listen, even though I'm sort of pro-amateurism, like, nothing frustrates me more than Ian NCAA's just limp, flaccid attempt at sort of defending their own, like, position in all of this. It drives me crazy. Uh, better statements probably coming from some of the conference commissioners. One in particular from the ACC that I really like, but I want to show you Greg Senke here from the SEC for a moment. We'll put that on the screen and just kind of remind you if, if you kind of zoned in, zoned out. So, the Supreme Court yesterday decided a case involving academic benefits additional academic benefits beyond what's currently available think laptops think study abroad programs things like that And smart people seem to think that while the scope of this case is relatively small, it could be a springboard for larger action in the future, including maybe the end of amateurism as we know it, where there would essentially be a pay-for-play system in place in college football that goes well beyond name-image likeness. This is what Greg Sankey said about this yesterday, the SEC commissioner. I'm going to read this just briefly. He says, The Supreme Court's opinion today in the Austin case provides clarity as we move forward to provide additional educationally-related benefits to student-athletes. What also is clear is the need for the continuing evaluation of the collegiate model consistent with the court's decision and message. He says the SEC's next step is to engage with member institutions to consider the implications of the opinion delivered today by the court and to continue our tradition of providing superior educational competitive opportunities while efficiently, effectively, I should say, supporting our student athletes. I also like what the ACC said yesterday, that the court's decision was a clear signal that the remedy for these kinds of issues in the future is through the legislative process and not through the judicial process. I think that's probably pretty smart. I think that's probably a, the, the right thing to do. And just to give you some clarity on my opinion on this here kind of quickly, just for a moment. The reason why I don't buy the idea that it's not unfair to, to keep the system in place the way that it is, as I've told you before, if, if college football doesn't pay these players. There is nobody lining up to do that in place of college football. You know, you kind of look around, you see like a G League in basketball, you see minor league baseball, you see corn Ferry Tour in golf, you see sort of like minor league organizations around all the rest of the world of sports. There kind of is no minor league for football. It kind of looks like a hole in the market. But what the people who have the power to create this are telling you is, while there may be a hole in the market, they don't view a market in the hole. The reason why is, is because... Look at five-star recruits. About half of them will be drafted in the first round of the NFL draft, but about half of them won't. And some of them won't be pros at all. And the NFL is not going to waste money on someone at the 18-year-old age level who they don't know is a future NFL player. That's just not a good use of their resources. There is very little appetite to pay young talent anywhere. There are 40 fewer minor league baseball teams now than there were two years ago. It's not a successful business. It's not a thriving enterprise whatsoever. The developmental NBA league, the, uh, now known as I think the G League, once known as the D League. Have you ever watched one of those games on television? Most of you have not. It's just not thriving. Think about Ronald Acuna, as big a star as he is in Atlanta, where I'm sitting right now. At one point in time, he was playing his minor league games in Rome, Georgia. Anybody could have driven to Rome and seen him play. But people didn't. I mean, and it was well written and well known how good of a future star Acuna had a chance to be. But it's not the kind of thing that motivated people to buy tickets that when the NCAA argues in front of the Supreme Court that we believe that if this becomes less about amateurism, that our product will be devalued, it will be less popular. I think their argument is potentially correct when you look around at the other sports entities trying to monetize young talent and they just don't see it working out very well. I mean, there's no doubt, and I'll wrap it up by saying this. There is no doubt that there is some sort of monetary value connected to elite, young, athletic talent, but it's not particularly easy to liquidate. And there's a lot of things in the economy that kind of work this way. Think about raw land for a moment. If I offered you a 30-acre tract of land, you would clearly want it. But while it clearly has value, it's not always easy to sell, right? You have to have somebody who wants that land in that spot, and sometimes forest land. Uh, if it doesn't have some sort of obvious connection to commercial use, something like that, it's just not that easy, easy to sell. It's got value, but it's not easy to liquidate. I would say that young athletic talent's much the same way. It clearly has value. You know, four and five star recruits are have obvious monetary worth, but sometimes it's not that easy to liquidate. If it was more people would be trying to do it. And I think that's the takeaway there on that. Let me do one more thing kind of quickly here for a moment. Uh, The rest of the blue chip ratio that uh, Bud Elliott wrote about at 247sports.com, I think there are a couple of interesting things here related to the SEC that I want to get to. We've talked about the top four now a lot. Bama at 84%, former four and five star. Georgia at 80. Ohio State's at 79. Clemson is there at 67. There's an entire logjam of teams at 66%. There is uh, LSU, Oklahoma, Texas, and Florida there as well. And admittedly, the Florida number is probably a little higher than some of us would sometimes give the Gators credit for because we like mocking and making fun of the recruiting losses that Florida has taken. Here's what I think is going to be really interesting about Florida in the very near future is that Florida with Dan Mullen, the recruiting wins they've earned, many of those in state, the recruiting wins they've earned have come at a time in which. Miami was kind of rebooting its program. Florida State was kind of rebooting its program. Well, the Miami reboot would seem to have kind of taken full effect now. They are on the blue chip ratio, uh, number 15 on the list with 55 percent, former four and five star recruits. Manny Diaz has kind of had a turnaround there when it comes to uh, Miami. Those of you that follow recruiting closely also know that Florida State, while still way less talented on paper than either Miami or Florida, the Seminoles have a little bit of recruiting momentum right now in a way they have not had in the past. Be interesting to see how Florida's blue chip number, the percentage of former five and four and five star guys they have, how that number is affected by the fact that right now Miami is recruiting better than they were a couple of years ago and that Florida State all of a sudden is kind of doing the same thing. I'll also mention um, uh, Texas A&M here for a moment, because what you see from Texas A&M is kind of a. Uh, I guess, growth of that program under Jimbo Fisher, where they kind of go from being in that sort of same category of a team like Auburn or someone like that, and all of a sudden now moving themselves a little closer to that Florida LSU level. They're now at 61 percent former four- and five-star uh, recruits. And of course, uh, the other SEC team that shows up here in the top 16, those are the teams that uh, sort of surpassed that 50 percent threshold, is Auburn at 56 percent boy a, lot, a huge spotlight on Brian Harson here we've talked about it before there's no doubt that Harson can coach he won enough games at Boise State to prove that but does he have that edge that's necessary to recruit in the SEC? Is he going to be able to kind of roll up his sleeves and participate in the kind of hand-to-hand combat that seems to define this league? How does that Auburn number change once some of the Gus Malzahn classes work their way off the, the, the counted list? And once more of those Brian Harson classes work their way on, that's probably worth paying attention to. And we'll certainly do that. And for now, we'll make that your SEC through. And here on Dog Nation Daily, we love to wrap things up by doing our Gator Hater roll call and showing off our golden shoe, the credentials of the Gator haters in our audience, because around here, we do truly believe those lousy, stinking Gators are the teams that good Georgia fans hate more than uh, any other. So let me give you this. This is kind of a little bit from a few days ago. This is something that a few of you sent to me while I was on vacation. So I guess Florida's hosting a recruiting event. And with some of the recruits there in the room, uh, in the weight room, they're showing off the video of the victory for Florida over Georgia, you know, whatever else. Do we have that? I think we'll show that on the screen here. Yeah. So uh, Matt Dog80 says, Dog Nationally, have you seen this? And so Eric Taylor tweets out that Coach Mullins playing the Georgia-Florida game for recruits on campus. You know, to me, that's kind of a low-rent thing to do. Four lost season from Florida, hanging their hat on their one claim to fame. But all the more reason for that motivation for this upcoming October. In fact, 130 days from right now, Georgia gets its revenge. And Dan Mullen won't have any more videos he can show in his weight room. We'll see you tomorrow Dog Nation Daily, presented by ESOG. And on the podcast, time now for R.S. Andrews' podcast, Cool Down. I love taking your comments. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Dog Nation Daily or... In the comments section, we post the show at dognation.com, and we'll give you a chance to weigh in on either of those two environments. look forward to reading those right here during our podcast, Cool Down. I want to go back to some of the things that were written over the course of the last few days while I was away, some interesting stuff. On last Monday's show, I talked about what I thought might be a fairly unprecedented run towards a national championship for Georgia that is actually more plausible than it might seem. The fact that Georgia might have to beat both Clemson and Alabama twice in the run towards that title game, that if Georgia beat Clemson the season opener, but if Clemson ran the table after that, that Georgia could very well face them in kind of a rematch in the college football playoff, and that I didn't think the committee would shy away from rematching those two teams if they'd opened the season in a good close game and that would only, I think, build the anticipation for the rematch. I think the committee would gladly put those two teams together, even though in the past they have sometimes shied away from uh, rematches. That's not, in my mind, the kind of rematch they would shy away from. But not only that, you know, if Georgia were to beat Alabama in the SEC championship, not only have we seen Alabama make the t- the uh, the playoff before as a non-SEC champion, they did so in 2017. In the most recent season, in 2020, there's also some precedent for putting in a team that lost a conference championship game. Notre Dame got in after losing the ACC title game. And that even if Georgia were to vanquish Bama in the SEC title game, that might not quite be enough to eliminate them in the college football playoff, that you might actually have to beat both those teams. Bubba Bill uh, wrote into the uh, comment section at dognation.com. He says you can also say that Bama and Clemson would have to beat uh, Georgia twice. They'd be traveling the same path, essentially, that Georgia was. But as E-Rock correctly points out, that the premise is not that you'd have to beat one of those two teams twice, that you might have to beat both of those teams twice. And that's obviously what makes this interesting is the fact that it's not inconceivable that the two top programs of the last five years argue, arguably the two top programs of the playoff era that you might actually have to to beat both of them twice in the same year to win a national championship it's just kind of an interesting scenario obviously there's a thousand different things that could go differently than that but that's at least one plausible thing to consider i thought that was pretty interesting and good comments on that also other comments kind of uh, rolling in here uh, i talked last week and Connor I guess kind of referenced this during the earlier show the 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 bigger show a, a moment ago that one of my headlines last week was related to this being a better offseason for Georgia than a year ago, that the presence of JT Daniels now as an established quarterback and the presence of Todd Munkin as a an established offensive coordinator makes this preferable to a year ago when you didn't know what you had in J- Jamie Newman. Come to find out, you had nothing. Uh, you didn't know yet what you had in Todd Munkin. Uh, UGA Chris writes in that Dog fans, he said, enjoyed last year's offseason conversation he says that Georgia fans were very optimistic about Newman they didn't feel anxiety until Newman left and I guess to a degree that's true however you know trying to keep my finger on the pulse of all of this speaking to Georgia fans every single day it was really kind of interesting that when all the stuff would come out of like at one point in time this is just crazy to think about at one point in time Jamie Newman was 12 to 1 to win the Heisman Trophy um, that's that's just insane. Now, part of that's just you know sort of inheriting the typical love that the typical Georgia quarterback gets. I understand that, but it's still that's a specific number attached to a specific name, and it's just crazy to think how high he once ranked in football circles to think about where he kind of you know ranks in that now. and I don't take pleasure in saying that. It's just been kind of an odd year f- f- for Jamie Newman. But the point that I'm trying to get to is this that when all of these things were said about Newman following the feelings and the opinions of Georgia fans it was not Georgia fans who were like signal boosting all of this it was it was not Georgia fans who were like hey you know look at all of this like on this show we would tell you when David Pollock said something about Newman and he was very complimentary a lot Uh, some of that for Pollock even predated before we even knew that Newman was coming to Georgia and so we would tell you the things that were being said but I can tell you there were a lot of Georgia fans who kind of didn't want to hear it not because they didn't believe it but just because it just seemed like a lot, very quickly, very suddenly, and you know, clearly, you know, you know, Georgia fans being optimistic like most college football fans are can eventually be talked into almost anything. But there was not this universal appreciation for how much love Newman was being shown by you know scouts and media types and things like that you know, this time a year ago. But beyond that, the bigger issue for me is not just you know, Newman, uh, it was Todd Monken. you know, Georgia fans a year ago, didn't know what they had in Todd Monken, And I think that you can say a year later that Georgia fans themselves are pretty happy with what Monken has done. And the only proof that I need of that is, is that, I mean, listen to sports talk, you know, listen to a show like this, look at the comments, check out the social media narrative. The thing that college football fans love doing almost more than anything else is criticizing play calling. It seems like it's the easiest thing to criticize, and it's sort of the knee-jerk reaction at any moment when things don't go well. Let me ask you this. For those of you that watch this stuff closely, most of you do. Did you see any significant criticism of in a year ago? Have you ever seen that since he's been on the job at Georgia? I personally haven't, and I try to watch this stuff fairly closely. I would say that there is a certain wisdom of crowds thing going on here where the the group of folks who follow Georgia football the closest seem to feel pretty good about what they have about Todd Monken. That's to me as as big as anything for why this off season a more pleasant conversation than one was a year ago is the fact that Georgia fans have gone from not really knowing what they had in Monken, not really knowing what had caused the offense to be so deficient in 2019, all of a sudden feeling like, hey, this may be the guy that kind of dials some of this up and gives us a chance to succeed and uh, do well. Uh, and then finally, on Friday's show, I did talk a little bit about, uh, this is last Friday, did talk about Darnell Washington and the fact that even with Rick Gilbert, who kind of comes in as a former name that we kind of paired with Washington in, on the recruiting trail, a tandem of guys we thought kind of went together, and in a lot of ways, you know, Gilbert's arrival at Georgia is almost kind of overshadowed Washington a little bit, a guy that we once kind of used in the same breath with Gilbert because they were similar positions coming out of high school, similar talent levels, it would seem like. The assumption now that the the, the presence of Gilbert takes some touches and some some opportunities to shine away from other Georgia players, that I actually don't think that Washington is going to suffer from that at all. I think Washington being a tight end-like player, playing the position of tight end, gives him a chance for a lot of success this year. And that um, I I just think that he's a very big part of the Georgia offense, even with the addition of a guy like a Rick Gilbert. Uh, Some of you seem to agree. Uh, Shoot the Hooch says that Washington's the ace in the hole for the Dogs' offense. He says Kyle Pitts at Florida was like a wide receiver, the tight end position for Florida. The Dogs have the equivalent of Pitts at wide receiver and tight end. Opposing DCs are going to have some sleepless nights, and I do believe that's true. And as I kind of alluded to. The tight end type player actually playing tight end may prove to be more valuable than the tight end type player playing the wide receiver position. Not to say that I don't think that Gilbert can have a sensational year. I think he can, but I am still very, very optimistic about Washington. To be honest with you, I'm more optimistic about him than I assumed I probably would be when he first arrived at Georgia. I, I just am very impressed with what he's done so far. WCH writes in to say that having Darnell Washington, Rick Gilbert, Jermaine Burton, Marcus Rosemary Jackson, Arian Smith, Garris Jackson, Landon McConkey, Samir White, Dominic Blaylock, and uh, uh, James Cook as targets for JT Daniels will be a thing to watch for the 2021 football season. And I believe that is true, that There's a collection of weapons here and not everybody's going to sort of succeed to their maximum potential. We understand that, that some of these guys will have great years. Some of them may not quite blossom the way that you hope they do. But that's a long list of names that WCH just rattled off there and a big chance for a few of those guys to really show up as big targets for uh, JT Daniels. And as we said during the regular show a moment ago, that if JT Daniels kind of plays that all SEC level, the chances are he takes a few of those other skill position players with him along the way, and that becomes an offense for Georgia potent enough to do the things the very best teams in the country uh, are doing on a year-in-year-out basis. Good stuff. Thanks for being here. Check out RS Andrews online at rsandrews.com. They will get your air conditioning unit tuned back up to factory fresh specs. Let them do that for you here today. Also, uh, rsandrews.com by the way, the website there, rsandrews.com. Thanks for being here as well on Dog Nation Daily presented by Engineered Solutions of Georgia. I will look forward to seeing all of you back here again tomorrow.